one minute of silence. Feels really uncomfortable. Feels a little awkward. Many of us are honestly just afraid of silence. If I were to ask you, when was the last time you had five minutes of intentional, uninterrupted silence, what would you say? Now, some of you who have little kids at home are like, is this guy crazy? He's obviously forgotten what it was like when he had little kids. And like, you close the bathroom door and walk in to like, just have a brief moment to pause. And somebody is immediately banging on him being like, I need something now. I have not forgotten. I do remember. And I'm glad those days are over. We live in a world filled with noise. It can be impossible to find a place of silence. And then when we do, what do we do? We fill it with noise, right? We put headphones in and we listen to music. We listen to our favorite podcast. We watch the same show for the 50th time. I'm embarrassed to tell you that I can probably quote most of The Office the number of times I have watched it. We even have sound machines to help us sleep. It can't be quiet when we sleep. We need background noise because we're so inundated with noise. Do you know that according to Google Analytics, we spend three and a half to six hours a day staring at this thing? That's more than some of us sleep. Can we just be honest for a minute? Some of us spend more time on this than we do sleeping. And then we wonder why we're so cranky. Not speaking of you, of course. It was first service. (laughs) Silence is not easy. And trust me, I am right there with you. Silence is not something I have mastered. It's not something I'm like, oh yeah, this is just great. I love absolute silence. Ugh. But it might be one of the most important things our souls need in the middle of a distracted and rushed life. Listen to the author of Psalms in Psalm 37, 7. Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord to help me. And he turned to me and heard my cry. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Your, Your response is, do you have any clue how important I am? Like, the world, my family, my job, if I just escape for silence, the whole thing is going to explode, right? Like, I am holding it all together. And... Maybe I do know, maybe I don't know how important you are, but I would humbly submit that the guy who wrote these words about being still is the king of a nation in the middle of tribal warfare who went to bed every night wondering about the tribe that's camped in the field that's coming to kill him and wipe out his entire kingdom. You and I, we go to bed at night worrying about our work meeting tomorrow, our practice schedules, And how many times am I going to lose at the same level of royal match before I finally get to move on? 
I remember when I first sat in silence, intentional silence. I was 18. It was my freshman year of college. I was at a Christian school. So we showed up to biology class, and the professor said, leave your backpack in your chair. You need your Bible, a journal, and a pen. Now, at a Christian school, everybody carries those three things, because if you don't, you don't love Jesus. At least that's the assumption. So we all had those three things. And we walk down to the park that's down the street and into the back of the park, And there's a big woods area back there. And his instructions were, I want you to find a spot in these woods where you can see no one. And I want you to sit silent for an hour. And I remember thinking, an hour? Okay, I guess I'll take a nap. And it was like he could read my mind and he was like, no sleeping. No sleeping? Cell phones weren't as big of a thing back then, So, because, again, I guess I'm getting wise, as Chase says. So uh, we didn't have those to distract us, but we had an hour to sit in the woods. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't remember everything that happened in that hour, but I know my personality enough to know that I was annoyed to be there. He did not obviously know how many things I had to do. I probably had work I had to do. I probably had homework I should have been doing but wasn't doing, but I should have been doing it. I also don't think he understood that I was in this relationship with this girl named Corey that was blooming, and an hour with her would be a lot better than an hour sitting quiet in the woods. Why are we here? And at some point in that hour, I do remember I heard a squirrel. And I don't know if you've ever been in like a fall woods where the leaves have come down and it's dry and you hear a squirrel. They're like this big, but I was firmly convinced there was a bear coming to eat me in the woods. There was so much noise. I'm like, what is this thing? So I keep looking around and finally I found the squirrel. I remember watching the squirrel play. I'm sure at some point I got out my Bible and read it. I probably wrote a few thoughts. And you might think, this is a silly story. It is, except that was 27 years ago. And that hour sits in my memory of what that day was like, like it was yesterday. Intentional silence gives us space to hear from God. Intentional silence gives us space to hear from God. My question for you this morning is, how could a few moments of silence each day transform our lives? Now, if this is your first or second time here and you're checking us out, I am so glad that you came. If you're like, do we always sit in silence to start service? No, we don't, but so come back next week. It'll be great. But we are in week two of a series we're calling The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It is based on scripture and it is based out of John Mark Comer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. So we just stole the title. I couldn't come up with anything more creative, so that's what we did. So that book used to be for sale in the lobby, but you can get it on Amazon still and have it shipped right to your house in two days. In week one, we took a look at how hurried our society is, and we talked about the antidote to hurry sickness. That's a real disease designed by or identified by psychologists in our time, hurry sickness. And the answer is that we need to learn to abide or live with Jesus. You might remember this glass jar if you were here last week. We put this big rock in the middle of it and then we poured a bunch of other stuff in. And that rock represents Jesus. This jar represents all the time we have in a day. 
And if we'll keep our priorities right and start here with Christ in the center, we have room for all the other things we want to do. We had a second jar last week that we tried to cram Jesus into as we put everything else on. It was a mess. It caused some of you to have a lot of anxiety during the sermon. So I won't do that again. This morning, we're going to press a little bit deeper in as we look at this discipline of silence and solitude. Now, I want to be honest. None of the disciplines we're going to look at are going to be easy. But I think this one might be the most difficult. I would venture to say that a lot of us are just afraid of silence. We're afraid to be alone. We're afraid if we sat in silence alone, what we might learn about ourselves. We're afraid what God might ask us to do. We might end up in Zambia if I sat in silence and listened to God. We're also worried or scared about the flaws in our relationships with each other and in our relationships with Jesus that he might point out in that moment. I don't think it's also only the, the most difficult. I think it might be the most important. Parents, I want to have an honest conversation with you for a minute, and I want you to know fully, I am one. I'm in this battle with you. But the truth is, our kids are watching. They're watching as we fill our calendars to look like this one. They're watching as we yell at them to get off their phones while we sit staring at ours. They're watching as we run from silence and yet say it matters. I actually think kids are a little more inclined to silence. And I think this because many of you know I started my ministry career 20 plus years doing youth ministry. Teenagers are a lot of fun. But my one rule for youth ministry for that entire time was no cell phones on trips. Now, in like 2000, when I started, that was a pretty easy rule to enforce. Most kids didn't still have them yet. And then 07 came and the iPhone came out and I was like, nope, we're still not taking cell phones on trips. So every place I moved, every different church I went to, the first trip we went on, it was, I was like, okay, here comes the battle. I knew they were coming because other youth pastors before me had been like, oh, they're fine. You can let them take them, which that's fine. I don't know what Daniel does here. Uh, Daniel's doing a great job. Don't hear me tell you this is the way Daniel should run youth group. I just said none. And I got all the like, oh my gosh, I don't want my phone. My snap streak's going to end. I'm like, I don't even know what a snap streak is. I'm wise. I don't care if it ends. Life will go on. It'll be okay. If you have snap streaks, I'm sure they're important. I don't want, I'm not trying to crush your dreams. And so every mission trip, every camp, every retreat, we did this. And then I remember when it had gotten really bad. I, it was 2017, 2018. We, we encouraged kids just leave them at home, but we had a box we could put them in and we'd lock them in the safe at church. And then this kid walks up to me. We have taken their phones, we got in the van, we've driven two hours down and we stop at the first like rest stop where we're stopping on this long drive. And he walks up to me and he hands me a phone. And I was like, didn't you, didn't you put it in the box? when we left? And he's like, oh yeah, that's the burner phone my mom gave me because she said I'm not allowed, not allowed to be without it for the week. And I was like, what? And he's like, but I don't want it. This is what we're doing to our kids. 
right? Like these are real stories. I'm not just made, I, I can't tell stories that well to make them up. This happened. I wonder. And I remember the freshman girl that walked up to me at the end of a retreat, at the end of a week-long trip, and she said, that was the greatest week of my life. I'm so glad I didn't have a phone. I wish I could have a second one. And I was like, you can. Put it in the drawer. Church, I'm convinced our addiction to these things is killing our relationship with Jesus. And parents, we're modeling it to our kids. An addiction is simply something you can't put away. And these are harder to put away than we want to admit sometimes. So how do we find, how do we figure out how to be quiet? I want to invite you into two scripture stories today. First one comes in 1 Kings chapter 19. If you've got your Bibles or phone, want to open them up. This is the one good use of your phone. Just pull it out, read your Bible. Stay on your Bible app though. No texting, no video games, all right? So 1 Kings chapter 4 says, Then he... He is Elijah in this story. So then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Super exciting story to read on Sunday morning. This guy's ready to die. What in the world happened that has caused him to be at this place? So if you don't know the story of Elijah, Elijah is a prophet of God in the Old Testament, and God told him to go to King Ahab and his wife Jezebel and tell them that it's not going to rain for a really long time. And so it's not going to rain. And so then he flees into the desert because they want to kill him. And then he leaves the wilderness and comes into this town that Famine has been going on. It hasn't rained for a while. He meets this widow and he's like, hey, I'm really thirsty and I need some bread. And she's like, yeah, we all are. This hasn't rained. And he's like, no, if you will give me something to drink and give me bread, God will refill your jar. And she's like, I have a kid to feed. And he's like, just trust me. So she does, makes him bread, gives him something to drink, refills the jar. There's enough for all of them to eat. And then Elijah lives in this town. Three years later, no rain. God says, Elijah, it's time to go back and talk to Ahab. And so he goes back. He tells Ahab, hey, listen, God's going to make it rain. But first, we have to have this battle where I'm going to prove to all the other prophets who are leading false gods that my God's real and your God isn't. So can we have the like God showdown outside the city? And so he gathers them all up on this mountain. They build two altars. The challenge is my God will send fire to light the altar. Can your God send fire to light the altar? And we'll see what happens. So Elijah's a gentleman. He lets the false prophets, the 850 of them who have gathered, go first. So he uh, says, okay, go ahead. Build your altar. See, see what your God does. And he encourages them at first. And then Elijah, I, I love Elijah because he's full of sarcasm. So he's like, uh, maybe, maybe your God's in the bathroom. Like maybe he's trying to get his five minutes of silence and you're like knocking on the door as a little kid who wants in, right? He's like, maybe, maybe God, just keep praying. God will answer. Maybe he took a nap. Maybe it's Sunday afternoon. He's tired. Football game's on. He took a nap. So no, doesn't, and he says, okay, hold on, that's enough. Pour water over my altar. Dump buckets again, do it again. Elijah prays, God, show up, show me that you're real. Fire falls from heaven, hits the altar. There's so much, it like blows it up. It's all on fire, it's burning. God is the real God. It's the Old Testament, so we know what happens, right? Everybody gets wiped out. And then um, Elijah tells Ahab's servant, hey, I want you to go up on the mountain. I don't want you to see, tell me what you see. 
He goes up, comes back down. He's like, I didn't see anything. Okay, go up again, come down, doesn't see anything. He does this seven times. On the seventh time, he comes down, he's like, there's a rain cloud in the distance. He comes down, he tells Ahab. Ahab gets on his chariot, suits up, takes off to go back and tell Jezebel there's rain coming. Massive torrential rain rain storm hits. Elijah tucks his cloak in his belt, takes off running. He doesn't just catch Ahab in his horse-drawn chariot. He passes him, beats him to Jezebel. Jezebel's like, I'm so tired of you. I'm going to make sure you die. We're going to hunt you down. So he goes out to this broom tree. He lays down. He's like, God, I want to die. And we look at this story and we go, what in the world is happening? But I wonder... If we're running at a pace, that if we had a safe enough place to be honest, we'd say, hey, I feel a little like Elijah myself. You know, I'm trying to do all the right things. Got to get my kids to this thing, kids to that thing. I got work meetings to go to. I've got all this stuff to do, but honestly, I'm tired. I'm tired of serving I'm tired of trying to love my neighbor. It's hard. They're not very lovable. And I'm tired of hearing I'm supposed to do it. I'm tired. I'm tired of parenting. My kids don't listen. We're not getting anywhere. We're walking in the same traction back and forth. And Jason, I'm just tired. I get it. Elijah runs out. And he does what we should all do when we're a little hangry. He lays down and takes a nap. Picking up the story, he says, Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some baked bread on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken your covenant with you, torn down your altars. They've killed every one of your prophets, and I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain. The Lord told him. And Elijah stood there and the Lord passed by and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. And it was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. If you're here today and you feel like Elijah, I'm just done trying, tired. My question would be, I wonder if God is showing up in our lives, but we're too busy so we can't hear it. Maybe you've been coming for a while and you're like, I just want God to show up and do something amazing. I come every week to church and I'm on my last leg and I keep hoping that God's gonna speak to me through a song, through a sermon, more than lightly through a great drum solo or light show, but God, I just want you to show up. 
And you walk out every week empty again. If that's you, I believe the story of Elijah has good news for you. God doesn't need you to keep trying. God needs you to stop, find some silence, and listen. It's not asking for hours. It's not asking for days or weeks. I'm not saying, hey, go home and do this for four hours every day. But what if we would find a place every day to sit in silence and allow God to speak into our lives? God used this time to restore Elijah, remind him who he was, what his purpose was. He sent him from here to go train Elisha to be the next prophet. Together, they led Israel back to God. Intentional silence gives us space to hear from God. And maybe you're like, well, that's a nice story, but it's the Old Testament, right? That's weird. I don't live in a cave. My life's a lot more busy than that. I'm like, yeah, but he went in a cave. There could have been an animal that could kill him in there. I know you're just dismissing that, but let's go to Jesus. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip over to Mark chapter 1 or your phones. It says this. The Spirit then, this is verse 12, the Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days and he was out among the wild animals and the angels took care of him. Okay, what happened before? Before this, Jesus is baptized. A dove came, comes down, sits on his shoulder, a audible voice from heaven that everybody can hear says, this is my son who I'm well pleased. You know, right? Like, that's what we're talking about. Some people are like, yeah, that's what I want to hear. I want the dove to land on my shoulder and tell everybody that I'm God's son and he's pleased with me, right? But we don't get that. But it's from this moment that Jesus goes out into the wilderness. And I've read this story Thousands of times, probably. And I always thought as I read this story, that's just how Satan works, isn't it? He just waits till you're tired, till you're a little hangry, been 40 days out in the wilderness, fasting, spiritual, but I'm still hungry. It's 40 days, I've lost a bunch of weight, and now Satan's gonna come and tempt Jesus. John Mark Comer in his book turns that whole paradigm upside down when he says, the wilderness isn't the place of weakness, it's a place of strength. See, Satan came to tempt Jesus when Jesus was spiritually the strongest. He spent 40 days in silence and solitude with his father, focusing in on who he was, on what his mission was. And it's in that place that Jesus is refreshed. And I wonder if that's why again and again and again through the Gospels, we see Scripture telling us about Jesus going outside, going away from the people to the desert, to the wilderness, to a solitary place. And just continue down there in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 29. It says, After this, Jesus left the synagogue with James and John. They went to Simon and Andrew's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. So they told Jesus about her anyway. So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, helped her sit up. Then the fever left her. She prepared a meal for them. That evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. So Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases. He cast out demons. But because the demons knew who he was, he wouldn't allow them to speak. 
Now before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up, went out to an isolated place to pray. Later, Simon and the others went out to find him. When they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. All right, let's just replay this day. This is one 24-hour period. Jesus gets up, goes to church, teaches at church. Now I'm going to tell you a little behind the scenes. I have run one, run one half marathon in my life. It's the only one I will ever run. I will never run another one. It's the worst experience of my life. I am more tired at the end of a Sunday morning than I was at the end of the half marathon, though. Teaching is exhausting. Jesus goes from there, goes home. Peter's mom's sick. Mother-in-law's sick. So he heals her. And then she gives them some food. That's nice. And they eat. But then the rumors got out that Jesus is healing people. And so the whole town shows up at his door. And they're all there. And they're like, hey, my brother's sick. My sister's sick. My neighbor's sick. This guy's got a demon. That guy's got a demon. Jesus, can you heal them all? And he goes through this all night long. Okay. This is what my Sunday looks like. Just pure honesty here. I want you to know. We leave here. I go home, check my fantasy football lineup. I then eat leftovers. And then I take a nap on the couch. And if you knock on my door while I'm napping, I'm just going to turn the porch light off and help you go away. Right? That's, that's the reality of what it is. Right? Like, but Jesus isn't there. He just keeps letting them come. And what's he do on Monday morning? He doesn't like get up. Or sleep in. That's what I want to do. I fight the urge to sleep in on Monday morning. No, Jesus gets up early. And he doesn't get up early to make a Facebook post so he can be like, hey, look at all the people I healed today. Everybody come tomorrow. I'll be down on 3rd Street. It'll be great. He doesn't get up to read all the email and respond to all the email from all the church people who emailed him and were like, hey, you said this. That's not true. And I have a disagreement with this. And I didn't like that. So he doesn't do that. He doesn't even check his fantasy football score. It's not even in there. He doesn't get up and play video games. He gets up early and he heads out to a moment of silence with his father. Let that sink in for just a minute. The creator of the universe who died on a cross to pay for our sins in the midst of a busy day went out and find, found time for quiet because he needed it, because it's where he found strength. And we tell ourselves, I, don't, I should say I tell myself, I can do this on my own strength because I'm dumb. If Jesus couldn't do it on his, why do I think I can do it on mine? Intentional silence gives us space to hear from God. Church, the cure for our endless hurry is not to do more. It's not to just add one more thing in. It's not to keep running at the same pace we're running at and hope it gets better. I think it's to sit in silence and solitude and let Jesus speak into our lives. Great Christians all throughout church history have experienced this and grown in this. St. Augustine said, entering silence is entering into joy. Thomas Akempis says, in quiet and silence, the faithful soul makes progress. The hidden meanings of the scriptures become clear and the eyes weep with devotion every night. 
I'm going to warn you, this last quote's going to step on your toes. It like mashes mine. Solitude, you see, gives us the space to look carefully and prayerfully at all the hair trigger responses we have for doing and saying exactly the opposite of how Jesus taught us to live. Often on Fridays, Paul and Chase and I will go play golf. And I'm not a great golfer, so I like the use of mulligans. Because oftentimes I'll put the ball down and I'm ready and I know I've got the right club. I know I've hit this shot before. And so I put the ball down, I square up and I'm ready and I get nervous. I tighten up and I hit the ball. I dig into the ground. It rolls to like the front row. So it went 10 feet. And I'm like, great, I guess I'll hit it again. But I'm going to take another shot just to practice to prove that I can do this. And I drop the ball and I swing and it looks beautiful. It goes up. Let's be honest, it never lands on the green, but it's a heck of a lot closer than the one that just went 10 feet in front of me. And I'm like, why can't I do that the first time? And Chase looks at me almost every time and he goes, hey, second shot's always better. And that was funny until Chase went on sabbatical. And then he wrote on his whiteboard in his office encouraging notes to all the staff. And he wrote to me, Jason, second shot's always better. And what he meant by that was, that's true for your words, not just your golf game. How many of us, because we're running so fast and so hard, we don't have time to stop, we haven't sat in Jesus' presence in a while, just spew things back to our kids, to our coworkers, to our neighbors, to our spouses. And we go, oh, should have thought before I said that. Uh, and then we come back and we have to apologize. When if we would just would have been like, take a minute. Okay, now let me speak. And we wouldn't have to say I'm sorry so much. Maybe what we all need with our struggle with self-worth and doubts and broken relationships and fear of the future and our anxiety and depression and our lack of meaning in this world is to put our phones down. Delete your social media accounts. I mean, what do we do? We look at everybody else's highlights and compare them to our lowlights and go, their life is so much better. And spend some time with Jesus. Hearing that you're uniquely made. You are God's masterpiece. We are called to make disciples. Each one of us has a story to share that God has given to us. And we're called to be light. Silence and solitude is where we'll hear those truths. You see, at Great Oaks, we value unimaginable transformation. And I wonder if some of us aren't seeing the transformation we so desperately desire because we can't even get off our phones for a minute and let God speak. We're afraid of the silence. We're afraid to be alone. So this week, I want to encourage you. This is your homework assignment. You can do it if you don't. There's no A or F. It's just up to you. I want to encourage you to take two minutes every day and sit in silence. For two minutes, just two minutes. And see what God says. 
listen for his voice and see how it changes. And if you do it this week and you're like, oh, that wasn't too bad, I want to encourage you for the next five weeks to add two minutes every week. So by Christmas, we're all spending 10 minutes a day in silence before our creator. I wonder how that will change our Christmas dinner conversations. Just putting it out there. How do you spend that time? Here's two ideas. You can figure out what else you need. Just sit still. Allow your brain to focus. Think about Jesus and what he's done. Or, if you're like, my brain will never focus that way, read a passage of scripture and then just think about it. Read it again if you need to and think about it. And lastly, I'd encourage you to set a timer on your phone because we all know how this is going to work, right? I'm going to sit for two minutes. I didn't set a timer, so I'm going to check my phone. It's been 30 seconds. It's been 45 seconds. Oh, I got a text message. And our two minutes is over, right? So set your timer, put your phone down, and it'll go off when your two minutes is over. For those of you who are like, that's easy, Jason. Two minutes, 10 minutes, I can do that. Here's your advanced class homework. How would life be different if we'd take an entire day and set it aside for silence and solitude two times a year, three times a year? How would it transform my relationship with Jesus? We're going to get you started. So we're going to end service today with two minutes of silence. I'm going to put a passage of scripture on the wall behind me. You can read it. You can stare at the floor in front of you. I guarantee you the room won't be silent. It wasn't first service. We'll see how second service does. But I want to encourage you to invest in this time. At the end of those two minutes, the band's going to come out. They're going to lead us in a song. If you're not done yet, you're like, wait, I need more. Just sit in your chair. Listen to what God's saying. Think about the words that are on the screen. If something triggers in you and you need somebody to pray for, there are prayer workers who will be on the side of the room. They would love to pray with you. Our pastors will be in the back if you have something bigger or something you'd rather share with one of us. We'll be back there to pray with you. And when you're done, stand and join us in song. Let's be quiet and hear what Jesus has to say.